Ready to study God's Word. Take your Bibles and you can find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to be reading just a verse in a moment from Isaiah chapter 9. We are in the Christmas season, so uh, hopefully we can make some uh, applications to that as well. Because we are in the middle of a teaching series that I entitled Home Alone. It's all about your relationships. And we've been showing clips. We started last week from Home Alone. Most people, I think, have seen uh, the Home Alone series. And the original one has become almost a type of Christmas classic. And last week, we showed you a clip and we introduced to you the premise of the story And we began to talk about relationships, and we introduced to you relationships and different types of relationships and the things you need to understand about relationships. And we want to uh, spring off of that uh, with today's message. I promised you that this morning uh, we would answer some really important questions about why uh, relatively smart people, uh, and sometimes very smart people, make terrible decisions. Why sometimes people uh, do things that normally you would think someone with their intellectual capacity or educational level would just be making better decisions than that. And so I I entitled the message kind of a how-to message, Why People Miss God's Best with Regards to Relationships and Connections. Why do people miss God's best with regards to relationships and connections? I want to show you here in just a moment another clip from Home Alone. As you will recall, there are two families that are preparing to go off on a vacation to France. The house is in upheaval because it's the night before they leave on their trip. It's the Christmas season. They're all trying to get prepared to go. The littlest one in one of the families is named Kevin. And, uh, and again, I find that interesting. And, and he's already been in trouble because he feels like everybody's picking on him. They're not giving him his just due. He's been corrected. He's been sent up to the attic to stay by himself and to go to sleep there. And uh, so he's sort of been banished away from the rest of the family activities. It has now turned into nighttime. Everybody's asleep, and in the middle of the night, a windstorm comes up. It knocks out the electricity, and all the alarm clocks are messed up. Therefore, when everybody awakens in the morning, uh, they awaken to the doorbell of the ride that's taking them to the airport. So they're having to rush around. It's, It's mayhem. These are large families. They're doing their best to get their suitcases thrown in. Some crazy things happen, and Kevin, the youngest one, sleeping in the attic, gets left behind, and that's what he secretly had wished for the previous night, and uh, let's watch what happens here. Watch the screen overhead. Mom? Dad? Mom? Dad? Where are you guys? Buzz?
cars are still here. They didn't go to the airport. I made my family disappear. Kevin, you're completely helpless. You know, Kevin, you're what the French call les incompetents. Kevin, I'm going to feed you to my tarantula. Kevin, you are such a disease. There are 15 people in this house, and you're the only one who has to make trouble. Look what you did, you little jerk. I made my family disappear. He got the very thing he wanted, didn't he? He made his family disappear. And the, and the point of the film clip is this, that Kevin thinks it's great. This is what he wanted. It's the perfect thing. But for those of you that have watched the movie know that he's headed for some real problems, isn't he? Despite the fact of how he feels. Now that's the story of a lot of Christians. They get what they want only to find out that they're headed for some real problems. We spiritualize it, and we say, yes, I, I got what I was believing God for. God gave me the desires of my heart. Isn't God good? God is good all the time. Hallelujah. I got what I wanted. And then six months later, as things collapse, whether we'll admit it or not, we wonder what we were thinking and sometimes wonder how we missed it when we got the very thing that we wanted. Now today as I, I teach and I share with you, I, I'm going to tell just a couple of not so flattering stories about myself. You know, you never like to tell unflattering stories. We all want to tell the Superman stories. But I'm going to tell you a couple stories that uh, hopefully you can connect with and uh, here are some of the processes that God took me through in order to understand his ways and some of his dealings in my life, especially in this area. And as I mentioned to you last week, I hope that you'll have ears to hear, because if you won't hear from my experience, God will give you your personal experience. So it always pays, I think, to listen to someone else's story. I have done the exact thing that you saw represented on the screen overhead. My wife, I think just a couple weeks ago with the ladies had shared this story. Some of you have heard parts of this. I'll, I'll just quickly share it again. When we first entered into the ministry, when we were very young, probably in our, our mid-20s, we pastored in a little town called Greentown, Ohio. Uh, you may know where Greentown, Ohio is. I will assure you, just thinking about Greentown, Ohio pretty much says everything you need to know. Uh, Greentown, uh, was right in between Akron and Canton, and it was just sort of this blip on the highway that connected these two areas. Now, we were pastoring in Greentown, Ohio, and to be candid with you, it was a, a, a challenging place. It ostensibly went through a church split before we had gotten there. Uh, the folks were just fussy, and they were cheap, and there was just all sorts of things. Trace told the story, I think, to the ladies that how we had a parsonage. It was right next to the church, which sounds good. But to be candid with you, it's, it's terrible living next to the church because everyone stops by. They act, they act like it's their house. It was, it was just a challenging time in our life. Well, as it worked in our denomination at that time, a district superintendent would oftentimes call you and share with you an opportunity to perhaps go pastor somewhere else. So I received a call from a district superintendent who said that they had a church that was available in Oakland, California. Well, when you're under that kind of pressure and stress and it's just a bad situation, how many of you know it must be God's will that the DS called you? Right? 
especially if you're going to make a little more money, that must be God's will. Because God would obviously want to prosper you and obviously want to promote you and obviously want to get you out of where you're at. Obviously, God would want to do that. And so we said, okay, we check it out. And so we went and checked it out. And there were, you know, you can see backwards so clearly. But when you're in the moment, it, it's, it's like when you're dating somebody and you marry them and then you're with them for a year and you look back and you can see so clearly the signs that are telling you you shouldn't probably have done that. But at the time, you're just in love. Well, that's kind of where we were at. You know, it's easy to see now, but at the time it wasn't very easy to see. We just, we wanted out. We wanted gone. We wanted somewhere different. We wanted something else. And so we went there with that particular mindset. And of course, it didn't matter what I saw at the moment. It was all, it was all somehow or another God's will. We stayed overnight at the district superintendent's house. And I'll never forget that night. I literally got up in the middle of the night and I started getting sick to my stomach. Had to go into uh, the restroom. I knelt at what we call the porcelain altar and uh, just sick to my stomach. And at the time, I can remember what was going on inside of me. There was a wrestling match concerning the will of God and this situation. And I was sick to my stomach. And literally, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it so bad that I convinced myself that this was the enemy fighting me over whether or not I should go to Oakland, California. Now, that's what I understood at the moment. That's how I interpreted it at the moment. You will always interpret things at the moment, especially when you're in this mode, to make it fit what you want. I, I mean, I mean if, if, if you're walking through a grocery store and you're wanting to go to California, you'll pick up an orange that'll be stamped, grown in California. And you'll go, the Lord has given me another sign. And that's kind of where I was. And so, so man, it was, this is what was going on until finally I remember I just said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to come. And then all of a sudden the sickness went away. Now I'm here to tell you at the time I took that sign and I took that peace to mean, wow, it's God's will. Well, we moved to California. I don't know that we were there six weeks before it became incredibly evident that we had made the mistake of our lives. Now, this isn't the message this morning, but I will tell you this. You can make the mistake of your life. That's why God put Romans 8.28 in the Bible. Because He will cause all things to work together for good to those that love Him and are called according to a purpose. So you can make a bad decision and God can turn it around for good purposes. But let me just share this with you. you. You can't continually do that and expect God to continually mop up your messes. Now, He'll do that, and, and I praise God for it. It did some good things in us while we were there. But that did not alleviate much of the pain that we experienced while we were there. I made, I know now, it was not the will of God. It was not God's decision. He was trying to speak to me at that moment. He was grieving my spirit. He was doing everything he could to put up the flashing red lights saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I ignored all of those things. I went ahead and did it my way. And I had peace. Now, I want you to get this. Some of you here this morning, out of hindsight have situations a lot like that or a little like that where you made some poor decisions, but if you were honest, at the time you made them, you said you had peace. You made a bad decision and you said it was God. You made a bad decision and you said, well, it was like a burden was lifted. Your feelings seem to be indicating that this was the thing to do, yet it wasn't the thing to do. And the question is, well, then what's the deal? Well, here's the key. When the quality of your decision-making goes up, the quality of your life will follow. However, if your decision-making is terrible, then, of course, the quality of your life diminishes. So it's all going to boil down to how you make the right decision and do you have the capacity 
to discern between true peace and false peace. True peace and false peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read these words. It says, For unto us a child is born. It's a familiar Christmas passage. Unto us a son is given. It says the government will be upon his shoulders. I like that particular phrase because it tells me that, that order is uplifted by the Lord. In fact, in fact, everything is sustained by the Lord. And if it's not on his shoulders, it will collapse. Says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then that last title, Prince of what? Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Now let's talk about peace, shall we? If Jesus is the Prince of it, then maybe it would be good to know a little bit about it. What is peace? There's a little insight we can glean from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, from the Hebrew and the Greek. Many of you will know that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom is used over 250 times in the Old Testament, and it literally means to be full or to be tranquil, to be harmonious, to be whole, or to be at rest. In fact, the Bible tells us that God delights in the peace or the shalom of His servant. So God will delight when you're at peace, when you're at His peace. He wants you to have that. In fact, the scripture also tells us in Isaiah that Jesus was scourged and that he died and he suffered and all the things that he uh, took upon himself at the cross, he did that for our peace. So Jesus literally died that you might be at peace. So this, I would say, is pretty big stuff, wouldn't you? Peace is, peace is important in the mind of God. In the Greek New Testament, we have the Greek word uh, and I, I transliterated it uh, because it wouldn't look right if we just put symbols up there. But it's actually pronounced heirene. 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 It literally means to be calm. It's a state of well-being. Quietness. And the absence of strife. In Luke's Gospel, the first chapter, some of those Christmas passages, verse 79, it tells us that Jesus' coming was to guide our feet in the way of peace. So Jesus is guiding us in the way of peace. Peace, peace is critically important. In fact, you never know how important peace is until you lose it. I mean, peace is what God wants to use in your life in order to give you direction. He wants you to have His peace. In fact, in Colossians 3.15, we read these words. Uh, Colossians 3.15, it says, And let the peace of God, what? Everyone say it. Let the peace of God, what? The peace of God should rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the peace of God is to rule in your heart. That word is literally the word that we would derive the concept of umpire from. Which means this. God is saying, or Paul's saying, by way of being used to the Holy Spirit, he's saying that peace needs to make the final call. It's the umpire in your life. If you want to know uh, where God is, you've got to find your peace. Find your peace. But, but as I mentioned to you, there's a, there's a twist in all of this that sometimes we've not learned and we don't know. And the twist is that just as there is true peace from God, there is a counterfeit and there is a false peace. Sure there is. There's a peace that is staged by the enemy. You understand Hitler ran around all of Europe at one time writing peace accords. Do you think he was at peace? Do you think that was true peace? No, obviously not. There's true peace and there's false peace. Go back to the story I just told you. I wanted to go to Oakland, California. I wanted to be there. That's what I wanted. I spiritualized everything I came in contact with in order to fit what I wanted. I, I, I used the God speak. I used the spiritual card. I made it all work because that's what I wanted. And truth of the matter is, when it all ended, I had a form of peace, but it was not the peace of God. And this is the point most Christians trip on constantly. Now, it should be no surprise to you that Satan tries to counterfeit everything. Isn't that true? 
Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. There's nothing he's original at. He counterfeits everything God wants to do in legitimacy. So just as there are true teachers and true prophets and true apostles, there are also false teachers and false prophets and false apostles. You do realize today that just as there is a true joy, there's false joy. People go to bars every Friday and Saturday night and fill themselves up with false joy. Because as soon as the buzz wears off, they're back in their depression. But God says there's joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus said, my joy I give you that no man can take away. So there's a true joy and there's a false joy. There's, there's a true love. Is that not true? True love. But then there's false love. That's probably the word we use infatuation. You know how it is. It's the one you got in high school. That this was the one. Aren't you glad that one wasn't the one? But you said, but I had a feeling. I, I, in fact, you even used the term. You loved them. But that wasn't true love. That was false love. That was infatuation. Hey, there's true wisdom and there's false wisdom. There's the wisdom of the world. The world will tell you to do. And, and this is another one that deserves a message sometime. We suck in the wisdom of the world and we baptize it thinking it becomes the wisdom of God. But the Bible says that God's ways are not man's ways. So there's a true wisdom and there's a false wisdom. There's a true hope and there's false hope. We hear that coming out of Washington, D.C. constantly. False hope. So I just gave you illustrations. If there's true peace, then there has to be false peace. Let me give you just a, a, a great illustration for those of you, in fact, for those of you that might be on the front end of your journey in following the Lord, and maybe for those of you that have been on the journey, you just need to zero in right now. I'm going to tell you kind of an unflattering story. I, I often tell the story that when I was saved, I had a two-nostril alert. I mean, I was converted. I mean, down to the bone converted. And uh, it was powerful. And a lot of changes took place very quickly uh, in my life. Three months after I was saved, God literally called me into the ministry. The reason he did it just three months into the thing is because he knew he better get me while I was dumb. You know, that sometimes he does that. He calls you to things before you get, you know, too smart, wise, or experienced. And so about three months into the thing, he called me into the ministry, called of God. And so here I am, just generally pretty newly saved, three months down the road. I'm just now being called. I'm changing out of the, 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 the secular college I was going into. I was going to the denominational college. I was making those transitions. And so my whole life was being rearranged. My personal life was rearranged because I was saved and now my whole direction and purpose in life is being changed and I'm, I'm, I'm working through all of that. And, and some of you will get this instantly, but it should come as no surprise to any of us that it might be that the enemy sees this going on and he says, we cannot let this go on. So my life started getting tough. When you get saved, hear me now, things can well, no, I'll back up. Things will get tough. Tough. I mean, I lost every friend I had. I mean, every single friend I had because they were going to drag me down there, going places I ought not go. I lost all my friends. I had no support from family. They weren't getting me up. I had to set my own alarm clock. I had to get to church by myself. I mean, they weren't going to help me in this walk any way, shape, or form. They weren't going to help me sign up for school. They weren't going to encourage me to go into the ministry. They did everything at that time to try to dissuade me from even doing that. So I was hearing voices constantly saying, no, that's not something you want to do. You probably just want to go do something that you can make money at. I was, I was going to a new church. Think about this. Only three to six months into a brand new church experience. It was a large church. I was trying to make friends in this large church. But how many of you know, cracking into friendships isn't always easy. And so, you, you know, people, I think, were trying, but it wasn't easy to find new friendships and connections in the church who, who, who people were, you know, worshiping there that had friendships for years. I was constantly being called by old friends, and they were trying to solicit me back to their old ways. 
So these things are all going on. Now let's add on top of this that God's refining me. And he's got me on the potter's wheel and he's working on me as well. You would think at least God would have given me a break. But instead, he's trying to break me. And so six months, seven months into the thing, it's not a very flattering story. And I don't want it to be seized by anybody because pastor was stupid for about a week in there because it got so tough. I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. My friends had called me up and they said, hey, we're going to go to a bar and why don't you come on, man? You've, you've, you've done that religion thing long enough. Why don't you just come and try this? And there was, such, there was such pressure at that time for all of those reasons that I just said, yeah, why not? Back in those days, now this will be comical. Back in those days, you didn't go to a bar, you went to a disco. You know, you know, the 70s are to our kids today what the 50s were to us when we were there. And, uh, but, but we lived in the disco era, you know, the BGs and, you know, Saturday Night Fever and all that disco stuff. So we went to one and, and uh, it was, I don't know, it was obviously the weekend. And you paid your cover and you got in and they gave you a little ticket with a number on it. And it was an unusual night because they were going to have three drawings that night. And uh, you could win three different things. And it kind of escalated. I don't know. They probably gave you one of the drawings was all sorts of free drinks. And another drawing was some T-shirt. And another drawing was maybe something, I don't know, bigger than that. But they were, they were three drawings. And it was one of their ways to, to solicit customers. And, and so they were going to have these drawings all night. And what made it different was that when they pulled out, <clears throat> when they pulled out the, the tabs that they gave you, that even though you won one of the lesser ones, that shouldn't disqualify you from one of the greater ones, so they'd throw your tab back in, and then they'd crank it back up. And, and so literally, you could win three things. But, I mean, what are the odds of that? Right? I mean, you probably got 500-plus people jammed into this bar. I mean, I, you know, you get the tab, you give it to them, and they're cranking it up, and all through the night, they're doing these drawings. I won the first drawing. I won the second drawing. I know you aren't going to believe this. I won the third drawing. Well, that must have been God's will then to be in that disco that night, wasn't it? Isn't that true? Must have been. That must have been the will of God. He's prospering me. Didn't have to buy any of my drinks. I got all this stuff. My friends were standing around him. I mean, that must have been the favor of the Lord. That's what that was. That was just favor following me along. Do you really believe that? What, but that's exactly what many of us do when it comes to poor choices that get confirmed somehow. There are numerous scenarios I could paint you. I've watched this all through the years. People get saved and then they go for a time and then they get under pressure and they go back to the world and they compromise their life. And then they announce to everybody, you know, now that I've just kind of got, you know, just sort of put all this into perspective, I have, I have found, I just found such peace. No, you haven't. What you did was you quit resisting the enemy. You quit pushing forward. You quit pressing into the will of God. Yeah, it's tough. When you're pressing forward, it can get tough. But when you quit pressing, yeah, it can feel like peace. I've seen people who through the years, including legacy, who have been raised for leadership or destiny, and they step up into a new level of, of leadership, visibility, and influence, and they're being refined, and they're being kept accountable. And it's tough at times. It's grueling at times. And then they'll jump out of the process and they'll say these words. They'll say, the Lord just lifted a load off of me. I found such peace. No, you didn't. You jumped off the potter's wheel. You were being refined and you were being kept accountable and you were being worked on by the Holy Spirit and you jumped off the wheel that God was using to form you into a usable vessel. You spiritualized your rebellion as peace and it's simply you ceased pressing forward. 
I've had people through the years. I mean, just through the years. They, they're ready to divorce their spouse. They don't have a lick of scriptural support. There's no abuse. There's no adultery. There's no abandonment. There's none of these things that we can even begin to talk about it. But this is what they'll do. They'll say, well, I divorced them and there was such peace. Well, sure, there was peace. It's false peace. You just jumped out of the battle for your relationship. See, false peace, put it up here, guys. False peace is a compromise of God's ways or precepts. It's like what the children of Israel did when they were battling into the land. They were about halfway through their battles to secure all the land that God had promised. They got war-weary. They started just negotiating treaties with the enemy. And all of a sudden, they started to announce how they'd found peace. They'd not driven all the enemies out of the land yet. They just negotiated with them. They struck an accord with them. They made a covenant with them. They compromised with them. And all of a sudden, it seemed like there was peace. There was no peace. 4,000 years later, we can look at the Middle East and say, there's never been peace. Even though they felt like peace was coming. Jesus, think about this, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the story, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I believe he's praying over the will of God. He says these very words, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he goes on to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, the Bible tells us that as he's praying in Gethsemane, he's praying with such fervency and intensity that he's literally sweating. His capillaries in his face are bursting and, and, and blood is literally coming from his face as he's praying about this. Now listen to me very carefully. Jesus could have got up and said, no. I don't want to do the cross. I've hung out with these people now for, you know, 33 years and they're all knuckleheads. I don't want to die for them. I don't like them. It's not worth it. What you're going to put me through isn't worth it. I can't even imagine that being your will, Father. And he could have stood up. He could have said no. And he could have walked away. And can I just suggest to you that there might have been a sense of peace? Because the sweating would have stopped. The intensity and the agony of the will of God would have been lifted. And he could have avoided the will of God and yet felt a sense of peace. I believe that could have happened, but it would have been false peace. False peace. You see, most people mistake relief for peace. You get a little relief and you think you're in the midst of God's peace. Sometimes relief is compromise. Sometimes the strain of a decision makes any decision feel like you found peace. I've watched people wrestle with decisions for lengthy periods of time and then make a bad decision and say they have peace, but the only thing you've done is you've made a decision and because you set your will in a direction, it brings a sense of relief which we mistake as peace. Just because you've decided doesn't mean you've entered into the true peace of God. True peace, listen to me. You might want to write this down. It's not on the screen. True peace is when you surrender to the plans and the ways of God. That's where you'll find true peace. True peace isn't just getting what you want, because at that moment the Holy Spirit says, if you, hey, if you're going your own way, then there's no sense me continuing convicting, continuing, continuing speaking, continuing trying to guide and lead. And you'll watch the Holy Spirit will just lift, and you'll say, I'm at peace, when in reality the Holy Ghost has left the building. Now, the question is, how do I begin to identify true peace if I'm making decisions? Because I think if you're listening to me this morning and there's something in your heart that really wants the will of God and the ways of God and you recognize that your ultimate joy and even happiness will only be found uh, in the will of God, it's where you'll be fulfilled, it's where you'll be content, how will you find true peace that gets you to that place and not succumb to false peace, which so many people seem to find themselves in. There's one verse that God has used so many times in my life and it's such an important verse. It's Hebrews 5.14. 
Hebrews 5.14. Listen to this for just a moment. He says, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. What he means by that is the mature. That is those, listen, what, what makes you mature? Listen, those who by reason of use, reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Keep that up there for just a moment. So the writer of Hebrews says this. He says that that your senses, that subjective internal area of your life where feelings come from, they've been exercised. You've used them. You, you uh, You have practiced with them in such a way that you've reached the place that when God now begins to work in your life, you have used them so much that now you know His dealings and, and you know when He's not dealing. You know, you know uh, Him saying yes or no, or you would know the enemy leading you falsely. Let me give you just a quick example again. Let's go back to Oakland. You see, at that time, again, I'm in my mid-20s. I've not, I've not at that time exercised my senses to discern anything. I mean, I just, we weren't in full gospel churches. We just, we were at a very cerebral level. We just looked at things in the natural. You know, you'd put up your pro list, your con list, and whichever list outweighed the other, that must be the will of God. And that's kind of how we approached life. So I'd never practiced. Or I've never, never had reason of use. And so here we are in the first, first moment, we're going to have to make a decision. And, and I've said this to you for years. You understand there are some things in the Bible that you'll never find codified by, by yes and no or, or good and bad. You know, if you're looking for a job, let's say, and you've got, you know, uh, an opportunity at Walmart or an opportunity at Target, you know, it may not be righteous or evil, you know, to go either direction. They're both jobs. But if you're wanting to find the will of God, what job should you take? Well, the way you will know is if you've exercised by reason of use your senses to discern what is good or what is bad, what's God and what's not God, I mean, I'm going to pastor a church in Oakland. I mean, that's not evil, is it? But if it's not God's will, it's still not God's will. It's still going around the mountain one more time. And and so there I was. I'll go back. I'm I'm getting sick that night. I've got this sick-to-my-stomach feeling, uh, you know, but I wanted my way, and I got up, and I walked away. And and you say, well, why was that important? The reason that was important now to me is this. I'm, I may still struggle yet with what God's yeses are in my life. But I know God's no beyond a shadow of a doubt. Anytime now that feeling comes up inside of me. I mean, I, how many times does God try to do things with you and you've ignored it, ignored it, ignored it, ignored it. And he's trying to get you by reason of use to identify his dealings in your life. But you've ignored him, ignored him, ignored him, ignored him. And I just decided, you know what, God, whenever that feeling, because I know that feeling, I'll never forget that feeling kneeling at the porcelain altar in the district superintendent's house. Never again in my life will I forget that feeling. And whenever that feeling comes to me now, when I'm facing a decision, I know that's the Holy Ghost saying, I wouldn't do that if I were you. People ask, they said, how do you know How God speaks to you, Pastor, I know because I blew it big time once when he was trying to talk to me and I ignored his ways and I walked away from it. And it became a very hard, hurtful, wounding, intense, pressurized situation. Let me tell you, the saddest thing about people's lives are this. You go through these grueling, hard, tough wounding, pressurized situations and you come out and you're no smarter than you were when you went in. Do you ever stop for just a moment as you're doing your happy dance that you got out of your tough situation and ask yourself, what might have been the will of God? What was He trying to say to me? Was there anywhere through this that He was trying to talk to me that I may have missed it? That's what reason of use Beginning to understand. Because God, listen, God's not trying to mess you up. This this was a liberating thing. God doesn't want you to have to go the long route. I Can I just tell you, God would prefer that you get to point A to point B by a straight line. 
He doesn't want you to do the isosceles triangle. He doesn't want you to do the geometry and loop to loop. He wants a straight line. But the only way you will do that is when you begin to understand how it is he's working in your life. Now, I'm going to give you, I don't know, four or five things here that will help you find your peace and what you base your peace on as God begins to do that in your life. All right? And I, and I got an important story I'm going to tell at the end of this. Number one, you want to write these down. I'm saving you thousands of dollars of therapy. Number one, are you basing your peace on objective scripture or subjective voice? Are you basing your peace on sub- objective scripture or subjective voice? Listen, I still believe God speaks. I believe he speaks to me. I believe in the prophetic tenses. I believe in the prophetic voice. I believe that he can give me impressions and intuition and dreams and visions. I believe these things. Those are subjective ways by which God talks to me as a believer. Nobody else has the same dream because they can't get in my mind. They can't hear the same voice because they can't get in my head. But I do believe God speaks. But listen, God speaking does not violate the precepts that we will find when he spoke through Scripture. So he'll never say something to you subjectively that will not be confirmed objectively. If God tells you to divorce and there is no adultery and there is no abandonment and there is no physical abuse, you need to stop and really figure out if you're hearing God. Don't just come up to me anyway and say, well, God told me, God told me I don't have to go to church. Well, that's interesting because God told me in Hebrews 10.25 to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. So, So what voice are you hearing? Well, God told me I could sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend because he shall meet all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. think you need to go back to Sunday School 101 on that one. God told me. God told me I don't have to go to work. Well, then I'll finish what he wanted to say to you. He also said if you won't work, you won't eat. That's Bible. Well, God told me I don't have to submit to anyone anytime. Sorry. That's not God. Go read Romans 13, the first eight verses, and we'll blow that one out of the wall. But you'll say, but I had peace, Pastor. You may have, but it wasn't true peace. You yielded to your carnal heart. God withdrew His affirming presence, and you no longer had any resistance going on in your life. Are you following me? Is it objective or subjective? Number two, what do you base your peace on? Do you base your peace on the qualified or the disqualified or the unqualified? The Bible, it is true, mentions that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That's a verse. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But here's a key. Not everyone is qualified to counsel you. Doesn't say that there's wisdom in a multitude of friends. Doesn't say that there's wisdom in a multitude of acquaintances. It doesn't say there's wisdom in a multitude of your coworkers that you visit with at lunch or around the water, you know, fountain. Says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So I'm just going to give you some suggestions. If you're going, let's say, through a marriage struggle, do you ask advice from a person who's had four divorces? That might not be the one to go to for marriage advice. Now, admittedly, they might, they might be able to tell you all the things not to do. Granted. But it might be wise also to find out those that maybe have 30 years or more of uninterrupted monogamy. They might have something to say too. Who do you get your kid advice from? People whose kids are far from God? I understand every child has a heart and they make decisions that you can't control. I get that. But I'm just saying as you're finding advice in your situation, it seems to me we'd find those that have a little fruit in their life. I understand. Listen, I understand people can learn like you're learning from all of my mistakes. I, don't, I haven't walked this thing out perfectly, and I don't claim to have walked this out perfectly. And so I can share with you my mistakes, and you can learn from my mistakes, and that has validity. 
But you also need to find the people who have learned from their mistakes, who are willing to admit their mistakes, who are willing to say, this is what we did to change our mistakes, and they begin to show some fruit in their life as to its working. Are they qualified to speak in this area? Because the last thing you need is to talk to someone, and all they do is your automatic affirmation or endorsement, which is what Christians do. They keep going around until they find what they want to hear. And as soon as you find it, you say, yep, that witnesses to my spirit. I'll get to that one in just a moment. Number three, isn't this good? Saving you thousands of dollars. Number three, what do you base your peace on? Unity or autonomy? Unity or autonomy. Amos 3.3 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, it infers, well, no, you can't. You can't walk together unless you're agreed. So listen, this is really good. Husbands and wives, listen to me. If you're married, the Bible says that you're one flesh. God has established order and authority in that relationship, and we understand But the man steps up, is supposed to exercise good spiritual leadership in family life. But listen to me, and I'm especially talking to the guys. Guys, everyone needs to find some agreement because you're all walking together. In other words, you just can't, you know, you can't be this dictator that just comes in and says, this is what I heard, this is what we shall do, here we're going, I don't want to hear it from anybody. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in major trouble. And by the way, I probably ought to flip side and say, there are some women who come into their houses like that. And I know what the answer is. Well, my spouse wouldn't know God's voice if he came and slapped him on the head. So what if my spouse is obstinate? What if if they don't want the will of God? What if this and what is that? Hey, listen, if it's a matter of being scriptural and obedient to clear teaching, listen to me. If, if you're ever asked to violate clear teaching, this trumps earthly authority. So if you ever hear me say that it's okay to go sin, you can, you can disobey. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to some women right now. Some of your husbands look at you and they'll, they'll, they'll make you compromise your walk with God. Ladies, I know you ought to respect your husband, honor your husband, and I'll say it out loud. But if they ask you to compromise God's word and his precepts in your life, that trumps husband. That trumps husband. You aren't going to stand before God and say, well, my husband said, hey, God's going to say, you sinned on your own. You sinned on your own. Same with guys, too. Come on. We've got to understand. That's why, that's why it's important. Again, I'm going to go back to last week. You don't yoke yourself. With unbelievers, it gets tough then, doesn't it? Sure does. But having said that, if this is just a matter of opinion now, if what we're talking about is something that maybe isn't clearly codified in God's Word, then you go back to authority and and you begin, if, if you're the man, to gently give leadership as to the will and to the ways of God in this particular area. And, and if you're a woman... Uh, you need to begin to trust, and I understand sometimes it's hard to trust if you have husbands that are just, you know, they're, they're off and whacked. I get this. I, I understand the dynamics. But everybody's got to do their part. And I've oftentimes both said to men and women that your spouses oftentimes are given to you because there's a timing feature in the will of God. And sometimes what you're willing to just bust on into, they're perhaps feeling a check in order to wait for a time. And, it, and listen, if you're praying and seeking to be obedient to God, God's not penalizing you because you want to exercise a little caution in making sure you're hitting the will of God. Now, if caution turns into obstinance, well, then we got a problem. But He really wants a family to move together in these things. And I believe together under authority that can happen. So if you're hearing God's voice, you got to make sure there's some unity. Number four, I got to hurry. Is it selfishness or selflessness? What are you basing your peace on? Selfishness or selflessness? I'm going to say this again. You can get your way 
and be at peace. I've, I've, I've watched dysfunctional families for years. There's somebody in the family tree that's just dysfunctional, dysfunctional John Doe. And dysfunctional John enters the place, and he's this selfish person. And he's exercising all of his selfishness, and everybody's yielding to it. And he's at perfect peace. He's not in the middle of God's will, but he's at perfect peace. In fact, I've watched people who say they love God function that way and say that must be the peace of God. Can I just share this with you? A lot of people's personal struggle is really all about whether or not your will is to be broken to the will of God. We don't hear that much in America anymore. We're so busy in church life empowering you and enabling you and affirming you and encouraging you. And God forbid we would even come somehow make your esteem feel slightly challenged. That's America. The Bible, while God wants you to know that you're a child of the king, at the same time he wants you to know you're a child of wrath and that carnal heart needs to be broken and you need to submit it to the king. And a lot of our struggles is whether or not we're going to be broken to the will of God. Many people, I like this analogy, are like a wild horse that God is trying to get a bit in their mouth, trying to put them in a corral to break them for His use and purposes. But what happens is, much like that wild horse, we shake the bit out of our mouth, we shake the saddle off our back, We break through the fence of God's corral. We run out into the glorious forest all by ourselves, feeling peaceful, feeling free. But your heart is still full of rebellion and God can't use you because you're too busy running whatever way you want to run when He was trying to break you in order to pull the king's carriage. Are you following me? We want to be used by God. God's saying, I must break you so that I can harness you for my purposes. And I, I personally, and people can disagree, but I'm usually right. I believe every church, I know this church is, is like a corral that God is trying to use at times to make you fit for long-term use. That's not an evil thing. Until animals are broken, they're they're of no good. They're of no purpose. Can I just suggest some of you have jobs that are God's corral. And He's got you at that job because something goes on at that job, not because He doesn't want you to prosper and He doesn't want you to uh, be exalted or promoted, but He's got you at the job to break some things in you for greater purposes. I can assure you that Joseph went to Potiphar's house not because that was such a great deal after being sold into slavery. God was working on that young man to get him to a greater destiny and until his will was broken at Potiphar's house and in a prison, he couldn't be number two in Egypt. If God would have taken that 18-year-old boy from the plains of Ur and catapulted him to second in all of Egypt, you wouldn't have been able to live with him. So what does God do? He puts you in a corral and he tries to break your will. He's not trying to devastate you. He simply wants something inside of you to yield to him and his ways. And that's the moment. That's the moment. I'm telling you, you gotta, sometimes your marriage is like that. I'm not joking. It's like a corral. And everything in you is just... I want out of this so bad. And the whole time, God's using something in that to get your will broken to His will. I know what you're saying. You're saying, I know that's what He's doing in your life. No, that's what He's doing in your life. I've heard it a thousand times. Well, I left Him. I left Him. I left her. And I was at peace. Well, I'm sure you were at peace. You, you jumped out of whatever God was using at that moment to work on you for some reason, some purpose. I've heard people say, I quit that job, and as soon as I quit that job, everything was at peace. I bet it was. 
And I'm not even saying it might not have been God's will to leave. I'm just simply saying, did you really know it was his leadership or did you just want out? I left that church. Oh, I've heard this a thousand times. Oh, I left that church and it was like the heavens opened. Oh, it was like the peace of God descended. There was a dove that landed on our fence that morning. Oh, it was just, it was just this, 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 this load was lifted. Sure it was lifted. You left a corral that God was using to make you fit for the master's service. I get no kick out of riding horses, especially when they need broken. But the truth of the matter is you'll never pull a great carriage. You'll never be in the parade. You'll never be used greatly. I'm sorry. There will be people sitting at the top of the stadium always wondering why they aren't in the parade. It's because you didn't stay in the corral. I know you don't get a lot of amens on that, but that's the reason God's not using America as a great missionary sending station. My son called me the other day, and at church he ran into this Korean family. And he asked them why they were here. And that Korean family looked at him and said, we've been sent by the church of Korea to come be missionaries in America. Well, praise God, we need somebody because obviously American pastors aren't going to do it anymore. We're just going to let everybody just do their thing and, and, and enable it in order that everyone can do what's right in their own eyes and we don't get anything done. Our culture is getting darker and darker and darker and God is looking for some that will have their wills broken to the will of God that He can use them for mighty purposes. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled that just because you get your way, He granted you the desires of your heart. Don't be fooled. And then number five and I'm done. Aren't you glad that I'm done with number five? Amen. Are you basing your peace on what your head says or on what your heart or your spirit says? It says in Colossians 3.15 that we're to let the peace of God rule where? Let the peace of God, post that, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of God rule in your where? Say that again. So where is it ruling? Hearts. Now here's, here's I want to ask you this. Do you, do you know when the peace of God is ruling in your heart or when you merely have peace of mind? There's a difference, you know. There's a difference. It's like when people, I, I use that little story there about, you know, uh, about everything. And finally, they get the voice that tells them the exact thing they want to hear. There were 15 voices telling them, no, 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 no. But then they hear their yes, and they say, that witnesses to my spirit. Really? Or did that just witness to your brain? Because that's what you wanted. Do you even understand when God's witnessing to your heart? Do you know the difference between peace of mind and peace of spirit? Do you understand that you can be in the mo most tumultuous, difficult, challenging moment of your life when things aren't making sense to your mind, but yet in your heart, you're at perfect peace despite this storm raging around you? It's the picture of Jesus in the boat going across uh, the, the sea and the disciples are in upheaval while the storm's going on and Jesus is snoozing. Does that make sense? Well, it doesn't really make sense to the natural man, but yet the Bible says that there is a peace that surpasses what? Yeah. So, so there's a peace that's going to have to transcend what your mind is saying. And here's our problem is we, we find peace in our brain when God's saying you've got to find peace in your heart. Sometimes it isn't going to make a lick of sense to your brain. It isn't going to make any sense to your brain. And I, I'm just going to end with this and we'll be done. Ten years ago, nearly ten years ago, and I'm not going to go through the whole story. Some of you know it. You've heard it a thousand times. And it was a defining story in our life, which is why it comes up on occasion. But ten years ago, when Trace and I went through our whole situation and there was great upheaval and woundedness and hurt and whatever the case may be, I remember looking at her one day, and I said it out loud. I think I was going over at that time. It was the, uh, it was the old bridges. We didn't have the new bridge yet. And I think we were going over the bridge, and you could see all of Charleston. And I remember saying it. I said, I hate, I hate this city. This city has been nothing 
but hurt to me. Nothing but pain. I was aggravated. I was wounded. Have you ever been in a place, maybe it's your job again, it could be a relationship, it could be any one of a number of things, and you just want it out. I mean, I just want it out. And can I just say this? God kept saying to me, because I may not know much, but I know the feeling of no. And every time I'd go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want out. I, I don't want to be here. I don't like it. And, and, and don't be offended. I, I mean, I like you. You know, I really do. I like you. There's a lot I didn't like, though. What I didn't like seemed to be greater than that which I did like. And God kept saying, no, no, no. I knew that feeling now. Any moment there would be an opportunity or a thought or anything. God's no, God's no, God's no. And, and let me just share this with you. If, if I would have, I know to this day, I could have packed my bags. I could have left this town and leaving would have brought me peace. But not true peace. This city, folks, was my corral. This city was my place where God said, I'm going to put a bit in your mouth. I'm going to put a saddle on your back. And I'm going to ride you till you collapse. He'll do that to you, you know. Until you finally collapse where you have no strength. And you even say to yourself, Lord, I've got no strength. I am worthless. I'm not even any good to you anymore. And that's when the word finally comes to you when you are weak. Then I am strong. That's why he's breaking you. You see, you don't want to be broken because you think you won't have anything left. I'm telling you, if you just let him knock the fire out of you and just let the breaking happen, and there won't be much left of you, and you won't in your natural mind think there's even much to it. But it's at that moment God says, now I can use you. I used to hate this place. But something broke in me. I'm not exactly sure when that moment was. I've tried to figure out when that moment was. I think it was about in 2007, somewhere in there, I think. Something happened right in that area. I mean, I'd go through moments where, you know, you'd always, you, you always do what the spiritual thing is. You always, oh, yes, I love everything. And inside you're going, I hate this. It's like how you go to work. Oh, I love going to work. I'm supposed to love going to work. And inside you're going, I hate this place. And that's how you live. But something in 2007 happened. Something broke. And, and I think I reached the place where I realized, you know what, that, that and again, I, I, I love you dearly, but there's something that happened when I finally realized you are not my source. I want you to like me, but I don't have to live with you liking me. I want people to affirm and, and come and be a part, but if they choose not to, that ain't going to stop me anymore. There's something at that moment happened. It was, like, it, was, it was like all the peripheral stuff got broken, and all of a sudden, I, I, got, I got a fresh vision, and I realized, you know what, Lord? I see you, and with you, anything can happen, and I'll always be okay. But you really don't get there until something breaks in you. And it broke. And now, believe it or not, I can say it with a clear heart. I kind of like our city. Now, I mean, there are things that will still aggravate me on occasion. But, but I, I like our city. I, I like everything about it now. I used, to, I used to try to figure out where I was going to be buried when I died. I know exactly where I'm going to be buried when I die. In this city somewhere. Some of you are in a corral this morning. You never thought about it till this very moment. You've been trying to get out of that corral and you've been trying somehow in some way to shake off the saddle and shake out the bit. And God's just saying, won't you just let me finish you off? Because the best thing that'll ever happen is when you quit trying to fight his bit and you yield to the master's leadership. Hear me now. I wish it was all ethereal and spiritual and God just did this mysteriously in our life. That's not how God does it. He gives you bosses and he gives you husbands and he gives you wives and he gives you pastors and he gives you friends 
And he gives all of these people to you, relationships that he will work through in order to accomplish those ends in your life. I'm answering some questions for some of you. You can today start making great decisions if you just yield to him. Romans 12, 1, and I'm done. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove that you might know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Are you willing Are you willing for God to begin to do that in your life? I believe. I believe he's ready to do it. Amen. Stand with me, will you?